Border Zone Emerging Geopolitical and Climate Risks in Finland. Interview with Emma Hakala. Episode 74. Theory meets reality in Finland's energy security and climate change policies. In this episode with Emma Hakala, she's a senior research fellow at the Finnish Institute of International Affairs and a member of the BIOS Research Unit, we gain a greater understanding of what a cascade of crisis around climate change looks like and the advantages of gaining foresight on these events before their impact is felt. Sounds like big words, but we use big words in this interview, so listen. We also learn about the quick shift in Finland's position on NATO membership and the change relationship with Russia. We take it head on. This episode addresses the changing climate and geopolitical realities of Finnish efforts to go zero carbon while shifting away from Russia. If you like international relations, this episode is definitely for you. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. A second title for this episode I was considering is The Cascading Challenges and Solutions for Finland, but wasn't as catchy as the first one I chose. So as you'll learn in the first half of this episode, Finland is looking for ways to address climate change and become more adaptable, like a lot of countries. But here's some interesting information, I would say, is that what was once thought of a solution with its forced acting as both fuel and a carbon sink is now emerging as an inverted solution, with its forested carbon sink burned, which is now actually adding to its carbon emissions. So how Finland addresses climate change requires a strong awareness of interlinked feedbacks. The second part of this episode brings in this international relations perspective that I just told you about. Emma tells us about the impact that Russia's war in Ukraine has had between the Russian and Finnish relationship. This includes Finland's application for NATO membership and a new security relationship through NATO and closer ties with the United States. So we flesh out a lot of these NATO questions and security questions that involve theories and understanding of international relations. The importance of this episode lies with understanding the shift in Finland and the experience that it has had since the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the explicit NATO alignment it now holds. Ambiguity is out the door. A new security line is emerging, and we should be aware of how this new security pact changes relations with Russia. So it goes not just for Finland, but all the neighboring countries as well, and regional countries, and we get into the Nordic country uh, perspective or the Nordic region perspective. In addition, what was once thought of joint project with Russia are almost all frozen. We can claim this as a win for EU sanctions, certainly cutting off relations and stopping cooperation on the surface appears in the moment right now to be a win. But we need to be aware of some of these really important issues, and Emma brings up the issue of water cooperation and other environmental issues that still require regional approach. So security may dominate current relations, but we need to maintain the awareness that future cooperation will still need to occur, certainly in the environmental area. When the time is right. Let me add that postscript there. My take on this interview with Emma is that by learning about Finland's energy and security challenges, we can appreciate the importance of regional cooperation. Even in a Nordic country like Finland with a small population and vast landmass, meeting climate change goals is still a real challenge. What is unique about our conversation this week is that the integration of this new security order with Russia 
and the concept of cascading crisis and events. These are set to compound even more in our changing environment and security situation. So we should not underestimate the challenges and unpredictability the war between Russia and Ukraine holds for NATO for the NATO alliance. And I'm saying that by just sitting in Hungary, also a neighboring country to this conflict. So maybe it's the proximity to all the conflict that makes it much more real. But as a listener for you, I just want to hopefully demonstrate in this interview and this, this discussion with Emma how close some of these changes, these ge- geopolitical changes, are somewhat abstract. We read about them. We understand how these relations affect how countries work together, don't work together. But how does that actually feel when it's implemented? And, and what are the long-term consequences of not cooperating on certain issues? So gaining some insight into Russia's neighbors and their actions can assist how we as researchers and analysts assess the longer-term impact of the war. I just want to point out in episode 69, I spoke with Emma's BIOS research unit colleague, Tara Vaden. It's an awesome interview. I suggest checking out that episode on energy and philosophy to understand more, both on the Finnish perspective, but also how climate change is approached, I would say, from a philosophical perspective. It's already proving to be a real top uh, podcast episode here on the My Energy 2050 website. For those not in the know, uh, this is maybe some housekeeping here. We are launching the Repowering Leadership in European Energy and Food Summer School 2023. This is done with the Central European University's Summer University Program and with the Open Society University Network. You can find a link to the call for applications in the show notes. The application deadline, I want to point this out, is February 14th, 2023. So apply now, apply early. I would love to see as many applications as possible. There are scholarships available, so you get a free trip to to Budapest. We have an amazing lineup of instructors, so not just a free trip to Budapest, but this includes Margarita Balmaceda, author of Russian Energy Change. She's been on the podcast before. We have Alberto Pontoschnig. He's the former director of Acer, and he's at the Florence School of Regulation. We have Tim Benton and Leslie Vinjamuri from from Chatham House along with EU energy law scholars Kim Tallis and Sira Lena Bententenen, I think I screwed up her last name, Bententenen, of the University of Eastern Finland and Tulane Law School. So we have awesome analysis and we have real practitioners and professionals speaking about EU energy law, EU energy policy, foreign relations, and we have other instructors talking about energy communities, agricultural and leadership. So I'm really trying to bring together a range of top scholars, policymakers here in Budapest for a whole week, actually eight days, to talk about this energy food nexus and really motivate and educate people about leadership and how they can be leaders in this area. So check out either the show notes with the link here or summeruniversity.ceu.edu for a full list and yeah, get your application in. A final note, this interview was done for my 2022 role as an Open Society University Network Senior Fellow at Chatham House, the Royal Institute of International Affairs. Funding was generously provided to produce the podcast for the episodes recorded in 2022, so I still have a great backlog of episodes. I'm still rolling out like this one, so keep on listening and go back and listen to any of those old episodes that might um, interest you as well. So with all that done... Now for this week's episode. 
I'm here today with Dr. Emma Hakala. She's a senior research fellow at the Finnish Institute of International Affairs and a member of the BIOS Research Unit. So, Emma, welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Yeah, no, this is this is great. And um, I'm just happy to be here in person because it, I think it matters. And I think our conversation is actually better than mm. uh, online. So I'm happy I, I walked all the way to Finland. <laughs> so, yes. It's <laughs> okay. a sustainable way. Yeah. Um, so uh, your, your area is around climate and security. I mean, it's a broad area and then you have your own specializations within it. But my, my first question is, how did you become interested in climate and security mm. issues? It's actually a rather long story and it's really by coincidence. Uh, but originally... Uh, I was still not even doing research. I was not doing my PhD, but I had been interested in the or doing some some uh, courses in my in my studies on the the Balkan region, and then uh, just through some weird coincidences, um, my teacher at the university was putting together like a research project uh, on uh, environmental security in the Balkans. And and for some reason, because he didn't really know anyone who would have been working on this topic in Finland, and I wasn't <laughs> working on it, but he just uh, asked me if I wanted to be included in the application or actually to write the application and then work on the project if, if it got funded. And I said yes <laughs> without really thinking much about it because it sounded interesting. And uh, and we managed to get the funding. And so then I also had to start my PhD because otherwise I wouldn't have they wouldn't have been able to hire me at the university. So that's how I got involved in this environmental security stuff. <laughs> and then uh, I'm I would still say that I do also environmental security more broadly, but uh, but I think it has I've, I've been focusing especially for the past few years uh, more on on climate security. But I guess I mean I just stuck with it because it sounded or it was and it turned out to be very very interesting like all these linkages between security and environment and and something that I I have noticed is that when I started my PhD way way back I think in 2011 um people were asking me like what is the linkage between uh, environment and security like wh- what are you actually looking at and it was really like a mystery to them how these two things could be related But then nowadays, especially when you talk about uh, climate change and security, it's quite obvious for people that that there is a link, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, no, I lo- I love it. I a the the story of how you I don't want to say accidentally got involved, <laughs> right? But <laughs> I, I think that's many researchers' beginnings is mm. kind of just falling into a topic, uh, and especially the proposal writing, and then oh wait, we got the project <laughs> now yeah. we have to do it. Yeah. So it's it's a great start, and then. Then how how actually the topics themselves evolve over time, like the the climate security, and then earlier people not knowing what what that connection, or they didn't see this connection, mm. and maybe maybe you can talk about yeah what what is the connection? This mm. is my next written question: mm. was what is the connection between climate change and security? Mm. Well, it's really wide, and maybe the that's the reason that I've tried to sort of uh, somehow formulate it or categorize it for myself in order to make it a little bit more like easier to grasp somehow 
And the way that I always explain it, at least to myself, is that uh, there are at least sort of three categories of um, these sort of impacts uh, of climate change that also have implications on security. And first, you of course have the direct impacts, which come from the like the physical climate change itself. Uh, so, for example, flooding and and storms and extreme weather in general and the implications on people's health and, and the sort of functioning of the society. And that's maybe quite clear. But then you have what I call cascading impacts, which which are uh, where the climate impact is combined with uh, this sort of socioeconomic and even geopolitical uh, factors. And they often also cross national boundaries and are they form form into these sort of cascades of, of impacts, uh, which could be, for example, forced migration or conflicts or supply chain uh, disruptions and things like that. And then third, you have these uh, transition impacts, which are then associated not really with climate change itself, but with the mitigation of it and the adaptation to it. Uh, and this is just not to say that uh, we shouldn't be mitigating climate change as as as, as best we can, uh, but because the the changes that we really have to do in the society are so wide and huge, they will have some implications on security, especially if we don't somehow take them into account and try to uh, prevent those impacts. Uh, so these would be things like, uh, for example, societal sort of disruption due to um, kind of protests uh, against these climate policies or then between countries. Uh, I think we are already seeing a little bit that that, uh, that there are these sort of winners and losers of, of climate policy and energy transition and so on, which might then reflect uh, into uh, geopolitical tension and so on. So I I guess overall you you would talk about a rather huge range of topics which all kind of fall under the the climate security sort of uh, title. But the, uh, I like this term cascading or cascading impacts. And is this uh, yeah I mean like it, it's a more developed way to look at this intersection of climate and security. And so it's. I mean, it's essentially the simplistic view of security is just one one factor, one maybe geopolitical element. Mm -hmm. But actually, it's this cascading um, impact of a climate event. Could you maybe provide an example or, or mm. your specific research that you're working on now on this? Well, um, at least from research that other people have done, uh, I think uh, one... A uh, good example would be uh, the way in which uh, climate change has has contributed to this sort of uh, deteriorating security situation or even conflict, uh, for example, in the Sahel region, where you already have like an existing um, security situation, which is not great. And you have, for example, uh, terrorist organizations that are functioning there. Uh, but then when you add to it um, climate impacts which cause, for example, water resources uh, to be uh, falling, basically, so there is less water available, and therefore that then impacts the livelihoods that are available to people, and that might uh, increase recruitment into terrorist organizations, which then, again... Um, 
uh, in, increases or yeah enables the terrorist organizations to function better and to therefore uh, make the security situation deteriorate further and then overall of course the 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 like um, issue of uh, water availability has impacts on human security itself so it kind of becomes this sort of vicious circle that feeds uh, itself uh, and then of course if if you want to look at the sort of more transboundary uh, impacts then there might be for example forced migration to due to the the of course also because of the the climate impacts because people don't have like possibility to uh, continue their livelihoods but also because of the security situation that might incre- increase uh, forced migration from from that area which might then have implications in in uh, surrounding areas or even for example in Europe or or elsewhere so uh, yeah i mean they do formulate into these sort of chains of effects which are often quite difficult to say what is uh, the sort of first trigger for something and and where well, it's also very difficult to uh, say in advance where a specific impact might lead to but i still think that even if even though the chains of effects are sometimes a bit sort of unclear and and kind of difficult to interpret or forecast i think it still makes sense to try to look at them and sort of analyze like w- what what kinds of implications there might be both for the sort of local people but then also more broadly on uh, even in in to geopolitical events and so mm-hmm. on and like one of the areas at least for me that comes to mind is migration mm-hmm. and people pointed to migration yeah. so is that kind of part of these cascading events yeah and definitely. impacts yeah we'll see yeah uh-huh. and, and i was just wondering uh how how does that well i won't ask i want to ask like what's, what's the solution but i think this but but maybe this uh Actually, it's not such a dumb question. Sometimes I think my questions are <laughs> dumb. No dumb questions. But but um, how do you how do you formulate like what the solution is? Because it would probably mm-hmm. be like multiple, um, yeah, multiple solutions putting mm-hmm. together. Just like you have cascading events, you have cascading solutions. Then mm, that's actually a really good term. I might steal okay. that. But, uh, no, but th- I think this is often the problem with climate security in general, and especially when you're talking about uh, cascading impacts. Because the the solutions are really sort of different from what we normally would consider in the field of security. In a way, I mean, most of these uh, impacts cannot be at least prevented or even really sort of um, prepared for through um, sort of normal means of security and use of force and, and things like that. I mean, of course, migration is a kind of good example in the sense that. Often the solution, at least in Europe, has been to close borders and to increase uh, border security and so on, uh, which uh, can, for very good reasons, be challenged, whether that's uh, a sustainable and long-term solution. But um, but otherwise, I think for most, for example, like uh, supply chain disruptions, it's not really the, the traditional security um, officials who would be responsible for responding to that. So what I've been sort of talking about is, on the one hand, um, uh, kind of developing our ability to uh, to foresight and to preparedness 
against this this sort of impacts that are very difficult to uh, to kind of uh, prevent as such and to to um, know exactly when and how they are going to happen. So, for example, by monitoring these sort of um, chains of events as they develop, and then also to uh, to have this ability for sort of risk assessment and uh, and a kind of a situational awareness um, uh, as things unfold in a way. Um, but but how do you do that? Because usually maybe um, it's a crisis, right? So it's unfolding very quickly. Yeah. And then how do you? Who whose job is it to step back and say actually this is the bigger picture, mm. or how how is that done? I, I think it should be done sort of uh, continuously, and at least in Finland we have these uh, sort of foresight uh, capacities where kind of the idea is to to follow these sort of uh, security related events, uh, and I think that in in that kind of work. Uh, climate change should fe- feature a lot more strongly and, and we should have a better understanding of how its impacts will especially combined with these more geopolitical and economic impacts how these will uh, affect also uh, F- Finland security for example uh, but yeah uh, then I guess there isn't really like a specific method or or a way of of um, going about like in a crisis situation, uh, and I think there is actually a lot of research has been done on this sort of um, kind of uh, uh, I forget the name of of uh, a few of my colleagues are working on this this sort of um, not situation room but a, a kind of. Uh, uh what you set up in a in a crisis uh where you sort of follow and monitor the situation and and then you sort of keep analyzing it as you go along and and, and try to come up with the sort of best uh, solutions or best responses to to do in a certain situation but um yeah that that's the problem that that there isn't really any like um that it's sort of impossible to say that okay there is this climate security threat and then there is this solution that we should now be yes. implementing but it also takes like preparation then ahead of time like, like you and your job right yeah so, i guess and maybe I, I back out just a little bit since mm. we're at this point and just ask um because yeah you're a research fellow at the I'm getting in front of the Finnish Institute of International Affairs mm. and then also a member of BIOS research so could you maybe explain um, the role that you have within those two organizations and what they're created for, okay, international affairs, but also the, the BIOS unit and what, mm. the overlap. or, or Yeah, w- mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, well, the Finnish Institute of International Affairs is uh, a rather sort of established um, research institute. It's actually funded by the Finnish parliament, but we are completely independent of it in the sense that we don't... Uh, it doesn't affect our research, uh, but of course the idea is to also inform policy making, and I think that's quite motivating, at, at least for me, that um, a lot of the research that we do is somehow used by policymakers, and, and that, that they actually are, at least in some cases, interested in in uh, knowing about it. Um, but then the BIOS research unit is is a bit more somehow independent and maybe a bit more, 
I want to say somehow spontaneous, but I don't know how, how spontaneous it has actually been because I think my colleagues who actually set, set it up uh, in the first place uh, probably did plan it for a long time. Um, and in, in particular, what... Um I don't want to say what are the threats to Finland, mm. but but what are some of the issues that are... Because Finland seems like a really safe country, <laughs> although you have a, like a kind of a noisy neighbor. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And and I guess that's that's changed some of the dynamics. So, mm. so uh, from this climate security perspective, what are some of the leading issues right now mm. for Finland? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I mean, uh, of course, we have to recognize that Finland is, uh, is in a kind of a good place uh, compared to a lot of the rest of the world in terms of uh, climate security specifically uh, because we are not maybe exposed to the most most difficult uh, sort of direct impacts of climate change and we also have quite a high resilience against these uh, these impacts but I think then that has also maybe led to this sort of uh, complacency in a way and there still are uh, people in Finland who are kind of saying that climate change doesn't really affect us, which I think is is uh, I, I, I I have trouble understanding how how you can sort of have this sort of worldview where you sort of completely close off the rest of the world around you because I think that inevitably uh, what happens in the rest of the world will affect us and especially actually Finland because we are a small country and we are quite uh, dependent on our foreign trade, for example. So in that sense, the the main threats I I would say in Finland are linked to the kind of our international relations, our our sort of place in the the world in that sense and the functioning also of the, the kind of... Uh, international multilateral mm-hmm. order that we have rely- relied quite a lot on. Multi- I would say the multilateral world, mm. and and I mean because in one sense we can people are questioning whether this is still um, present or not. Mm. Not I mean we have like the trade wars with China, the United States, and kind of entrenchment of maybe industry or industry shifting back to specific countries for production for manufacturing, mm-hmm. um, but. The, especially for Finland, I would say, and, and this is my question, so I don't want <laughs> but, but, to but it seems like because they want to join NATO now, mm-hmm. the membership or the application for membership is there, that this multilateral world is even more important. And maybe you could expand on, the, on a security perspective from a Finnish perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it, it became, I mean, well, Finland has always been the, sort of speaking for the, the multilateral world and a, a sort of a rules-based order and, and all of those things uh, and in that sense probably nothing changed but just the 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 reasoning and the justification for that uh, of course is now a lot more clear and we really have to sort of rely on on that and of course NATO has been a kind of a maybe a bit of a difficult issue in, in Finland uh, because uh, of Russia, I, I would say uh, that that there has been a kind of a reluctance, uh, especially in the among the the politicians, to really speak up for for joining NATO, and and we've sort of seen it as more advantageous to to stay in this um, kind of a uh, less allied <laughs> uh, position. Um, 
and even the the public opinion was very quite clearly against joining NATO up until the Russian attack on Ukraine after which it completely changed like almost overnight the public opinion that is because even then like even after the uh, attack I think that there was a kind of a uh, like a period of time when the politicians were not really taking a stand and everyone seemed to be a, a bit unclear about what to do with NATO but then in the in the public opinion polls uh, it started to look like people were very much for joining NATO and then the the conversation just changed completely and uh, now we're on the on the way okay okay and but maybe you could i mean you have a degree in what political history right so yeah. maybe you could provide a bit of context of why why Finland wasn't a, a member of NATO earlier. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we were in a, a bit of a strange position maybe uh, f- during the Cold War because, of course, we had a, a war with Russia during the Second uh, World War, which we uh, lost. <laughs> and, uh, and, of course, the, the peace deal that we then signed uh, had quite strong uh, sort of obligations for Finland to uh, to stay in check in a way for for the Soviet Union uh, and that uh, kind of remained um, even though it was not like uh, we were not somehow directly under Soviet rule or anything like that we, we were back then we were a neutral country uh, and I think it was also in the interest of Soviet Union to to keep it that way. So Finland was always very reluctant to to join any, or at least in our official policy, we were not uh, looking to join any any sort of um, military alliances with the West or or anything like like that. Um, and we talk about this era of Finlandization, where uh, Finland started to kind of. Um, uh, maybe self-censor it, it, itself also uh, sort of we were so afraid of somehow upsetting the Soviet Union that we were reluctant to to take a stand or to to maybe look out for our own national interests and, and there was really this sort of balancing act between what would potentially cause problems with, with the Soviet Union and what would be good for, for us and I think that there's still a lot actually in the history of that time that is a bit unclear and that we should actually go through as a nation in order to understand what was uh, what was done and why and how were those decisions uh, justified. Mm-hmm. And then what has been the impact of Russia's war in Ukraine? So, um, for, for example, I think the gas has stopped. Maybe you can expand on that. So that's just my question to mm-hmm. you is, yeah, yeah, what, what has been the impact on Finland? Well, it has been quite huge, of course, uh, in a way, because uh, a lot of the the linkages and uh, and cooperation and trade, of course, with Russia that existed before has completely stopped or at least been significantly reduced. Uh, and a lot of it is a lot of it is due to the EU sanctions, which we, of course, are a, a part of. Um, and then a lot of it might also just be. For example, Finnish companies uh, who used to function in Russia, uh, just drawing out of the country if they if they can. Apparently, it has also been a bit difficult sometimes to do it very fast, uh, and that has been partly, I, I guess, because of the difficulties of uh, 
like functioning in Russia anymore, but also of course because of the criticism towards those like Finnish companies who would still be selling their products in Russia. Um, so a lot of a lot of the, the economic life has has changed quite a lot actually, because of course the Russian trade with Russia has been quite significant for Finland. Um, and then, of course, other forms of cooperation, for example, in in terms of um, cooperation on the environment or or water, uh, we've had very functioning uh, sort of transboundary water cooperation with with Russia previously, and I think that that hasn't completely come to like a halt or it's not completely st- stopped because there are issues that just have to be somehow taken care of in order to to make sure that uh, basically water runs through some channels but uh, other otherwise i mean there isn't really any anything extra is is not happening so so mm. a lot of the the work that has been done in the past and that has actually been quite even maybe important uh for finnish and russian relations is just not being done anymore okay so it just uh, i would say stop but it froze yeah yeah, yeah. that's and then unlikely to pick up anytime soon no i don't think so i mean it depends a bit on the issues but uh, but otherwise i i think that it's hard to see all of that coming back in any mm. anytime soon so is this like forcing a, a realignment or i don't want to say realignment but like a may, maybe this gets into the eu it gets into the nato but maybe we could talk about the eu a bit more because maybe so finland served as a bridge to russia or a mediating mediating mm-hmm. role with with russia thinking oh we're the neighbors and we we know we've known them for a long time we've had this deal during the cold war and it worked out for us and then after the cold war ended what trade really went down there was a big mm-hmm. economic adjustment here mm-hmm. um and how how do you see finland then in this role of Russia's western neighbor mm. but on the eastern side of the EU. Mm. You mean in this the current situation? Yeah, in the current situation. Yeah, I, I think we are maybe I mean it's it's very clear of course it has to be said that it's very clear that we are in the in the west and in the EU and I think that that now it's it's somehow more important than ever uh, for us to underline that. And maybe also now it's it's less important to think about what kinds of implications that might uh, have in in Russia because um, it doesn't really matter anymore and also i think that that's what enabled uh, of course the nato process that we kind of the the worst scenario well maybe not the the absolute worst scenario for finland but uh, but in terms of like uh, international politics has already come through true so uh, so we don't have to worry about that um but in terms of the the eu i actually think that finland has in a way uh, lost some of its Uh, position uh, as an EU country uh, when it comes to this sort of expertise on Russia because I think that now in the EU quite understandably we are listening a lot more to the Baltic states for example or Poland who have been st- saying for decades or many many years at least that that we should be very careful of Russia and, and it, that it's a very clear uh, threat And I think that Finland has, uh, until now, always been a bit more somehow careful and and kind of more balanced in its in its views. So now I think, in a way, Finland is still like within the the EU countries. Finland is is maybe sort of looking for its uh, its kind of role or or the the final identity uh, that we have. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. And 
how okay this is, this is like an obvious i love obvious questions but <laughs> this is an obvious question but how do you think russia perceives this because mm. this is certainly not what they expected in the war how it's proceeding is not what they expected yeah. so how is this bad i'll just say how is this bad for russia what, mm. what's what's happening well of course i mean it's it is a bit ironic that by starting the war they sort of forced or at least gave a very big incentive for finland and sweden to join nato which probably wasn't in their in their plans and definitely isn't in in their interests and they have been speaking up against finland and sweden joining but especially finland joining for years so so this is this is definitely bad for russia but um and it's not like they somehow welcomed it <laughs> in in uh, in a very sort of friendly manner but i think that at least so far there hasn't been like a very um strict uh, message or condemnation or anything i mean of course they've uh, worded their displeasure about it but i think that they are trying to sort of just um shake it off a little bit and yeah, pretend. Oh, it doesn't matter. Yeah, us. exactly. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, I, I think it's at least for me, because I'm not a, a Russia expert at all, uh, it's impossible to say what what will happen in the future then after the war in Ukraine ends and so on, and then Finland and, and Sweden will be in the NATO uh, and how the situation then develops. But it, it definitely is in a way like a strategic loss uh, for Russia as well. A new geopolitical reality for Russia. And I mean, because of the shift and the expansion of NATO right to its border, again, for another country as well, uh, just like the Baltic states, and now now Finland and Sweden are members. And um, my, my one question then will be kind of shifting it to to fossil fuels. And how do you see this? Um, for the Nordic countries, because yeah, actually, um, I mean, I'm formulating the question, reformulating the question, because they were so were they we'll just say reliant on Russian gas, uh, coal, I believe Poland was, uh, and certainly oil as well. How do you see this shift away or impacting uh, how fossil fuels are used in I'll say the wider Baltic region? Hmm. Well, of course, we are now, we now have like an additional and a very strong additional incentive to move away from fossil fuels fast. And that has been the the sort of, um, at least a stated um, goal in at least the Nordic countries. Uh, I don't know exactly actually about the Baltic countries, how this has been worded. I mean, of course, the the there as well the the idea has been to to get away from from russian uh, fossil fuels as as fast as possible um but then how they perceive the sort of uh, broader like uh, climate related uh, energy transition as a part of this uh, i don't know so well in finland this whole discussion has definitely been linked very strongly with the energy transition uh, and I think it has also been recognized to some extent that if we actually had been faster with the energy transition before, then we wouldn't be in so much trouble now. Um, but then when you look at how, how it's actually turning out in, in practice, um, I'm maybe not so convinced that that 
this will, I mean, of course, it, it will speed up the energy transition and give additional incentives and also funding and so on for it. And it's it's like increasingly important in, in policy. Uh, but then there is a risk maybe that that we will just stick to the sort of easier easiest solutions to replace Russian uh, oil and, and gas and, and everything rather than to look for the most sustainable solutions. And I think that there are sort of two things or two sort of uh, time frames that you have to keep in mind here, because of course now in this situation, looking at this winter, which is now starting and the one following that, I think it's quite important to just find energy sources where we can we can find them. So, uh, for example, in, in Finland, that also means using some fossil fuels that we have on our own and uh, and even using wood for energy, which is not really advisable <laughs> in, in any way. But, uh, but these are very short-term solutions and we have to acknowledge that. But then we also need to look at the, the longer term and understand that, that we shouldn't make any decisions uh, that will somehow lock us in to this, uh, this sort of uh, dependency, like continuing dependency on fossil fuels and that we have to uh, kind of do everything with still with a, with a view to uh, the energy transition on the longer run, which will make everything easier in the long run anyway. <laughs> so. Right, right, because you're breaking the fossil fuel dependency. Exactly, yeah. Uh, and then becoming much more. And how, I mean, looking ahead towards uh, even 10 years from now, but probably 20 years from now, um, or even to 2050, mm-hmm. uh, how how well does it look that Finland, um, I don't want to just say like we'll be like zero carbon, but, mm. but in one sense more self-sufficient, but also, or maybe integrated with other um, Scandinavian countries? Mm. Yeah, uh, I I mean, Finland has really ambitious plans in a way. For example, we have a climate neutrality target that we will reach it by to 2035, which is quite early. And how optimistic am I that we will reach it? Um, I don't know exactly. I mean, I mean, I'm not completely convinced, unfortunately. Um, and not so much because uh, because there isn't effort. I mean, I think that there isn't maybe enough effort still. But but there also are like big sort of structural problems with achieving this this goal. And as a kind of an example, uh, a lot of the the sort of strategies and, and programs towards the the climate neutrality target are based on this um, certain level of carbon sink because we have a lot of forest. And that, of course, is very beneficial to us as a, as a carbon sink and, and carbon storage. Uh, and that helps with the climate neutrality uh, target then. But now it's turned out that uh, because we've been uh, increasing the cutting of forests <laughs> over the past years, so now actually there's quite a high risk that the, that the sink will not only be considerably reduced but actually turn into like a source of carbon instead which would completely mess up our our plans for the for climate neutrality uh, and then what i think that we we are actually now now in a very big rush to think about how we overcome this situation like whether we uh, try to limit um, the cutting of forests or whether we try to find emission 
cuts elsewhere in other sectors, but we are not really having this discussion at all yet. So in that sense, um, I think that there are many, many problems. And then, of course, if you look at the, the Nordic countries uh, and cooperation with the Nordic countries, then that's one, um, one solution uh, that could be used more. I mean, we have a, a joint uh, electricity market already. Uh, and But now, actually, there has also been some protests or like uh, kind of op- opinions against it as well, because uh, in a way it means that in some situations we also export uh, electricity from Finland and some people have considered that it would be smarter to just keep everything that we we have but then on the other hand the the Nordic market has been important in sort of balancing out situations where uh, we are kind of running out of electricity Um, so I think that we those kinds of things will will help um, and there probably would be a lot more that the Nordic countries could also do together and not just think about our own strategies but but uh, actually maybe a bit surprisingly it's not uh, at least in in sort of national level policies that's not being talked about so much uh, the nordic uh, aspect. cooperation mm. it's not so much oh okay no it's great to hear that there's other parts of europe essentially eastern <laughs> europe that don't cooperate so so yeah. or don't cooperate as much as they could yeah. basically for some common solutions then yeah. okay <laughs> <laughs> um um maybe maybe i i have and it's something uh, goes to one of the things that you've written that I was reading, but I, I reinterpreted it into some different <laughs> phrasing here. Um, and it goes back to the IR perspective. And my question is, does realism take a center stage to a more liberal, glo- globalized perspective to security? So we're back to the hmm. security perspective. And hmm. is is there, because this liberalized, globalized world, hey, this is all great. We talked about multilateralism. Hmm. But now, yeah, there's a war, right? <laughs> and so, and with military active and everything. So are we in a much more realist world? Mm. I, I know that some people that can interpret it that way. And, and maybe, in a way, it's maybe true that we are at least talking about very different issues than we were maybe even like a, a year ago as, as like the major threats uh, facing us right now. Uh, but I don't necessarily think that that means that the sort of realist uh, perspective would be the only way somehow then to analyze these uh, developments and to to understand them. So I think the liberal um, kind of worldview can can also um, work. But of course, in that then we have to accept the reality that we we are in a war situation and and that uh, that it's also a war that could escalate and and so on but i don't think that that in any way somehow in a way cancels out any of the other problems unfortunately that we have in the world right now and and i also uh, i'm a bit afraid that that these things have a have a habit of sort of accumulating and maybe cascading as well in the sense that that, that somehow these different crises um, so like the the war and the energy crisis and and the climate crisis are also all linked together and uh, and if we don't if we shift our focus completely on only the the war for example then we will actually do ourselves this favor in the sense that these things will come and bother us in the future um so 
Yeah, I I don't necessarily see a, a shift or at, at least a need for a shift completely uh, in this sort of um, IR perspectives and and uh, and our need to understand the world. But of course, I think that a lot of analysis will be written on how all of this happened and how somehow it seems that a lot of people were quite blind to the to the level of uh, change that was was to come so uh, probably there will be some shifts also in the sort of more scholarly um, perspectives to this but I, i'm not really sure if we can say even yet what they actually then will be yeah no this is one of the difficult things about discussing I have to say this current energy crisis or crisis is yeah no it's almost too soon to be and when, once I mean maybe we're being very academic yeah yeah because that's true. it's like well it's too soon to talk about it <laughs> yeah. so we can't say anything although it's been months and yeah. and certainly a lot of journalists and other people are talking about it and they're happy yeah. to talk about it but we're like well we have to kind of see how <laughs> we have to sit back and analyze <laughs> we'll, we'll come back with a journal article in two years <laughs> yeah. time three years to to talk about it okay but one of my we'll start wrapping up concluding questions then um and it i would say it reflects both the cold war and also the current we'll say I'll just say liberal realities or something, a multipolar polar mm. world or multilateral world is the position of the United States since we're talking about IR. And from a Finnish perspective, um, because they've had to walk this careful line with Russia and the United States, if we want to frame it like that, and kind of leaving out the EU, but the EU is an important actor, is how, then how does Finland maybe perceive the United States now, the role the United States provides both within NATO or even economically as well? Mm. I think it's an interesting question. And I think that, that um, I mean, of course, the somehow the reliance maybe on on the U.S. for security has now become more pronounced and more clear. And, and it's clear that, of course, the NATO um, NATO members membership uh, is the most obvious kind of sign of that and and it will in, in, inevitably uh, take us closer to to the US and uh, kind of make the relationship with the US somehow uh, tighter uh, and I <laughs> then that also of course has some implications on on Finnish policy and uh, and those issues actually have been talked about very very little in Finland in the sense of not not even like um, criticism towards uh, joining the NATO, but even this sort of um, uh, like understanding of what that then means to our foreign policy and our uh, sort of positioning in the world and, and so on. Uh, and especially from the point of view of um, if there are significant policy changes in the US, which could happen if there is a new president uh, in, in a few years. Uh, I think that discussion has really been in the background for now, which is probably understandable in this this sort of um, urgent situation. But I think that it's something that that uh, needs to be had at some point. Uh, but overall, of course, uh, I would say that Finland has had a close relationship to the US um, also previously. And now it's just somehow maybe uh, somehow formalized what has been sort of uh, 
kind of always there, but now it's it's more somehow visible and and formal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, exactly. Okay, uh, and then my final my final question would be uh, focused on looking at 2050. <laughs> so so uh, usually I ask because and I know your key area is not not uh, energy, but I usually ask like what is the uh, energy system going to look like in 2050? Mm -hmm. But my my question to you then is, you know, what will the Nordic neighborhood slash Baltic neighborhood look like in 2050? Do you think there will be a, lo a lot more cooperation, uh, integration, if we think about the EU integration over the years? Um, maybe not even looking at 2050. It seems like really far away. Yeah. So, so yeah. maybe that's a horrible question to ask. <laughs> yeah. so I was just thinking about it. I, I maybe, hate telling the future. but yeah. Maybe in the next 10 years, particularly mm. under, um, the, the, under the security situation right now. Mm. Well, even then, of course, it's because I feel like uh, it's difficult to say even what happens in like six months yeah. or, or something. But if we want to speculate, um, I think that, that there is a good chance that we have um, made our energy system at least to, to some extent more sustainable. And that will also then mean a lot of like closer, uh, certainly... EU cooperation, but also hopefully Nordic cooperation and having these sort of uh, linkages and, and kind of the infrastructure for uh, sharing in a way the energy sources that we can then all have in our in our countries. Um, but it's, I mean, it really can go two ways, I, I feel like. And one way is that, that there will be more cooperation and and uh, maybe Russia is a big question mark what what they will become uh, after after the the war and everything uh, but regardless of that I, I think that there is a good chance that that um, Finland will have closer cooperation and closer ties with the Nordic countries and the EU. But of course, then the other scenario, which is a kind of a nightmare scenario, would be that these sort of uh, kind of internal fights, even within EU countries, uh, will increase. And even within the Nordic countries, there will be this sort of increasing need to actually just uh, secure our own uh, energy sources and our own interests and prioritize it uh, very much first and then to kind of uh, only uh, draw inward in a way and I think that in the long run or even in the run of 10 years that would be harmful for for everyone and the countries will be in that case a lot somehow less wealthy and and the security situation probably in general will be uh, worse uh, but unfortunately, I, I I think maybe still last year or a few years ago, I would have seen that as a kind of a unnecessary dystopia. But now I think it's it's something that we have to consider as a possibility, and then we have to somehow active actively uh, try to do something to make sure that that doesn't happen. <laughs> no, Emma, I think I think you're absolutely right, uh, and it's sometimes like it's hard to finish the podcast because <laughs> because it's kind of like, well, it's pessimistic or something. Mm. But I seriously think this is uh, an issue, now that I've been to a few countries and just, yeah, from my experience as well, with the high energy prices, it seems like society is calling for more and more energy 
independence like this is our energy and we want to have low prices mm. and why are we selling this to other countries and mm. it's a real threat to the eu yeah I think. yeah unfortunately it is yeah and um wait i was going to try i was trying to give it back to you so <laughs> so um so you see this trend as well where where i i don't want to cut how, how can we label this as nationalistic tendencies or mm. just kind of this is our these are our resources and we need to be using them yeah definitely it, it is visible i think in finland as well which is a bit of a surprise to me because i think that we have overall in finland we've always benefited from cooperation with other countries and having these sort of open links and open trade with other countries we've benefited from it a lot more than we would have from any sort of uh I mean, of course, it's maybe this situation shows that it's also good to have some of your own sources for energy, for example, and, and so on. Uh, but still, uh, trade has been really good for us. But maybe it has been so somehow invisible that uh, that then it's easy to somehow just say or, or claim that uh, that we should actually just be holding uh, more closely to what we have and not sell it to anyone else. And, uh, and close all our, our ties and trade with, with other countries. Um, and yeah, unfortunately, I think that the more there are these maybe populist politicians who also kind of reinforce that uh, that claim, there is a risk that it will it will somehow take hold. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think it's a real uh, risk. Okay, Emma, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this episode. We produce the My Energy 2050 podcast to learn about cutting-edge research and the people building our clean energy system. If you enjoyed this episode or any episode, please share it. And remember, each episode is equivalent to consuming 10 journal articles, one book, and 500 charts on how to implement the energy transition. And you get it all in less, usually, than 60 minutes for each podcast. Guaranteed. I can actually say no other podcast makes this guarantee. The more we spread our message of the ease of an energy transition, the faster we can make the transition. You can follow us on LinkedIn, where we are most active, on the My Energy 2050 page, or on Twitter and Facebook. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. Thank you for listening to this week's episode.